This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week you're going to hear from a leader in innovative healthcare delivery, Oshner Health Network, OHN. Their accountable care network is part of a massive Oshner Health System, the largest nonprofit academic healthcare system in Louisiana. And it's one of the largest health systems in the southeastern region of the U.S., has 47 hospitals, more than 370 health and urgent care centers across Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and the Gulf South. The Oshner Health Network is the value-based care arm of the system. This has upwards of 300 affiliated physician practices, 3,000 physicians, 580 locations. They're responsible for managing over 400,000 lives across six risk-based accountable care contracts and their value-based care portfolio. They're making a difference. As I think about the collaborative effort in the Oshner Health Network and what they're doing to improve health in the Gulf South, I think about four different things, patients, communities, providers, and employers. When it comes to patients, I mean, this is a accountable care network that is choosing care that is of the highest clinical performance standard. Uh, they have health information and data infrastructure that's, that's streamlined and supports their providers, communities. They have a keen focus on the underserved populations. They're striking uh, strategic partnerships. They're looking at evidence-based clinical protocols. Such great work being done to really impact population health at a community level. The providers are engaged. They're financially aligned. They're embracing value-driven care. This is unlike anything I've ever seen in terms of the cultural transformation. And then lastly, the employers are taking notice. You know, we're seeing an effort now where OHN is partnering with employers uh, across the state and beyond to really come up with digitally powered wellness programs and a value-based model that serves uh, both fully insured and self-insured populations. Dan, this is just an incredible interview. We, there's a lot of depth here. And I, I'm excited to be, be able to share the breadth of this uh, work with our listeners so others can glean insights and, and drive value transformation in their respective organizations. Yeah, listeners, today you're going to really enjoy hearing from Eric Gallagher. He's the Chief Operating Officer at Auctioner Health Network and, and the Auctioner Accountable Care Organization or Auctioner 
Accountable Care Network, Ocean. He's responsible for directing the network and pop health strategy, oversees the value-based performance management operations, and population health services and care management programs, post-acute care strategies, and value-based analytics. He just has great insights into the things that Auctioner is doing and leading the system really well. Eric is joined by Dr. Bo Raymond, the medical director for the Auctioner Health Network, their clinically integrated network. And, and both of these gentlemen just have an incredible insights and are, are doing amazing things in this system and showing us what true leadership is like in the value space. True leadership and a commitment to the underserved. Dr. Bo Raymond and Eric Gallagher leading value transformation at Auctioner Health. Let's now hear from these two amazing leaders. And if you like this content and you want to learn from other leaders, uh, so please feel free to support our podcast, Race to Value. Go to your podcast platform of choice. Feel free to leave a five-star rating if you're so inclined. We love your reviews. And I'll go ahead and now and hand it over to Eric Gallagher and Dr. Bo Raymond as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Eric and Dr. Raymond, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so exciting to have you on the show this week. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Eric and Daniel. Glad to be here. Well, as we start our conversation today, I wanted to start with the state of value-based care when it comes to health systems. I mean, 2022 was a really rough year for a lot of healthcare providers out there. I mean, it's been bad since the COVID-19 pandemic began, and now we're seeing staffing shortages and skyrocketing labor costs and supply chain disruptions, inflation, rising interest rates, volatile markets, you name it. But it's all like putting a, a pressure on revenue and expenses. And there's a workforce crisis here, too. There's a lot of pressure on hospital patient volumes and you know, there was even a report I was reading uh, recently from Kaufman Hall, and it was saying that staffing shortages are going to require facilities to operate below capacity, and it's going to impact revenue. And, you know, there's a lot of health systems that are trying to figure out, you know, how to position for the future. And I know value-based care is very much front and center of what of what Oshner Health is doing. And the pandemic seems to have hastened with your health system, the migration of care to outpatient, virtual, and home settings. And while at the same time, you're making key investments in technologies and treatments. And, and I'm really excited to start at this kind of macro level and, and just ask you both if you could provide your perspective on the current state of the industry and how we're moving to risk and what health systems should be thinking about in terms of maintaining economic viability as we meet some of these challenges that I mentioned earlier, like uh, mounting cost pressures and and having, you know, ultimately more financial accountability for total cost of care. Can you describe the transition of value-based care at Oshner Health System and where the Oshner Health Network, OHN, and the Oshner Accountable Care Network, OACN, is becoming more and more of a, a vital part of the future for the health system? Yeah, sure, uh, Eric. Uh, this is this is Eric, and I'll, I'll start off with this one, and, and first just want to say thanks a big fan of the race to value podcast really love what you guys are doing at the institute certainly it's been a great resource to our organization over the years i mean your question uh, is a heavy one uh, certainly in weighing on the minds i think of of leaders in in every healthcare organization certainly the the staffing shortages uh and the the rising cost of labor has been 
one of the most critical challenges that I think we're facing in a health system. And as it relates to, to Ochsner and our focus on value-based care, really sort of served as a catalyzing environment for value-based care. And what I mean by that is that really, you know, every patient, certainly now uh, from the governmental payers, but, but really even more broadly, every patient is almost viewed as a value-based care patient uh, because the costs of operating the traditional care delivery system have now skyrocketed throughout the pandemic such that what we were already seeing a movement in where fee-for-service revenue and the reliance or the dependence on volume was slowly becoming unsustainable economically, that just accelerated tremendously with the pandemic. So I think for us, certainly within Oxford, you know, we are not immune to those same challenges and, and not to say that, you know, we had already reached and zoomed past the tipping point such that this had no impact on our health system. But I will say uh, that the investments that we have made in our value-based care infrastructure in an auctioner health network and auctioner accountable care network, the work that we've done really within the health system to forge the collaborative relationships uh, with the traditional care delivery operators and leaders to engage them in a different model around value-based care, I think certainly has positioned us not only to a certain extent to withstand the pressures and the changes that we've seen, uh, maybe a little bit better than, than some others, but has also just reinforced, I think, what was already an established uh, and communicated vision from our leadership that this is the direction that we need to be moving uh, long term. I just think that long-term, you know, some of those long-term goalposts perhaps have been really set a little bit closer in the future than maybe we thought they were going to be a couple of years ago. This is, this is Bo Raymond, and I'll just chime in a little bit as well. So with everything, all the pressures that are going on, there's a lot more focus of taking care of the patient with where they are um, and trying to prevent them from coming into the hospital for care. One, it's it's during the pandemic, it was it was certainly something that had to be done regarding televisits and virtual care and digital medicine and, and the like. And now with the increasing workforce pressures, you know, when you have someone come into the into the facilities to, for an inpatient visit, it's much more costly than it used to be. And also it's creating a bit more of an access issue within our specialties and, and primary care as well. So now what was done to try to take care of people at home because it was what was more convenient for the patient and not having to come in. Now it's also playing a role in how we take care of the patients that we serve um, in a way to facilitate better access for them in the outpatient world without them having to come in as often. So, I mean, we have our digital programs with hypertension and diabetes and 
We're continuing to enroll people in those and try to scale those further and further. Um, we continue to do virtual visits. Uh, we've started to do more e-visits as they're called, which are more like portal messages going back and forth with the patient. Um, all that to try to increase access to care without them having to come to the emergency department or to actually be so ill that they have to be admitted for inpatient services. Um, and so that's where a lot of that shift has come. And so it's sort of building on what started in the pandemic and just accelerating that even more because now in reality, hospitals are, are very aware that they're not making as much money when somebody gets admitted to the hospital as they used to because of the high cost of, the, of labor. Gentlemen, I want to shift the conversation a little bit away from the market challenges that everybody's facing and, and, you know, and, and shift toward this idea that uh, it's an area where auctioner really exceeds and remarkably. And it's with the treatment and the care that you deliver to eight Americans ages 65 and older. You know, we know that the population of these individuals is expected to more than double over the next 40 years. And our listeners would certainly appreciate how your organization is transforming its care model. And auctioner has enhanced its commitment to the Baton Rouge region with several multi-million dollar investments in new facilities, expansions, and community partnerships, totaling more than 60 million, with much of that investment targeted to improving the lives of these seniors. And Auctioner 65 Plus is a new initiative which consists of freestanding PCP value-focused clinics delivering high-touch team-based primary care. And seniors are receiving coordinated team-based care from primary care physicians, APNs, clinical pharmacists, uh, nurse care managers, social workers, dietitians, and other professionals. And I also understand the systems recently launched a provider-sponsored Medicare Advantage plan. Can you share with our listeners how the care for your ever-growing senior population is evolving and how that aligns with the value-based care strategy? Thanks, Daniel, for the question. I uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, and I've, I think I've seen the statistic where 10,000 Americans are aging into Medicare on a daily basis. And, and certainly in our region, we're seeing that tremendous growth as well. At Auctioner, within OHN and, and Ocean, our MSSP, Accountable Care Organization, we've had significant experience on the value side uh, in recognizing the importance of the transition to risk for the senior population. So starting back with our experience as a health system running a Medicare Advantage plan that we sold about 20 years ago now to Humana and have since been managing a global capitated population of about 40,000 Medicare Advantage members, and then extending additionally into other MA products where we are sharing in the risk. And certainly with Ocean, our MSSP ACO will have doubled in from 2020, where we had 31,000 beneficiaries to over 63,000 starting next year in 2023. Uh, and, and certainly we feel that our results there sort of speak for themselves. Um, we saved CMS over $100 million over the past five years. During 2020, we saved over $30 million. And, and in the most recent performance year, over $24 million. And certainly that population continues to grow. Our partners and community independent and affiliated providers are increasingly recognizing 
both the the pressures on the reimbursement model for this population, but also just the growth in the population uh, and the opportunity from a value perspective to to participate more in value-based agreements focused on the aging population. We do have two sort of newer entities um, within Ochsner focused specifically on the unique needs of the aging population, both on the care delivery side, as well as on the Oxner Health Plan side. And I'll let Dr. Raymond speak a little bit more about those. So Oxner Health Plan is a new Medicare Advantage plan that we just launched um, in 2022, mainly in the New Orleans and Baton Rouge areas. Uh, and it's a way for us to have individuals who are in, in who are eligible for MA, um, who know our system well and work well with our system, uh, to continue to engage with those patients and and offer benefits in different ways uh, with those patients, and try to grow that that health plan because we've had the success with our capitated products in the in the past, and so we want to continue to build upon that by having a another offering for our the patients in our region. And with the sixty five plus, these are these are interesting clinics. So these are recently launched. There's a couple of them that are that are out there now that we started. Uh, they're led by Kenny Cole. Dr. Cole is a internist, um, but also has studied in clinical transformation. Um, so he's taken some learnings from different areas. I mean, they're, we're not the only ones doing this sort of model. I mean, there's GenCare and, and others out there as well. And so it's a way for us to engage with people who are 65 and over who have either Humana MA, Ashram Health Plan, or, or an MSSP, or other MA plans, and get better coordinated care through these different clinics. So with these clinics, um, they're designed differently. They have fluorine that is uh, glare resistant to help prevent tripping. They have community areas for um, patients to get together to talk about different things and as well as to have different lectures and presentations for patients as well. There's a fitness center that's built into it as well, so they can have some supervised exercise there at the center as well. So there's a lot more to it. Social workers, we have other, other people to help out as well regarding this. There's a lot that's going on to try to help care for the 65 and over population within these clinics. And they're doing very well initially. The, People who are coming love them, um, and they continue to rapidly expand um, in attributed population. Um, and we've, the physicians who are there are intrigued by the new care model, um, and it is attracting lots of physicians who are interested in having that extra time to spend with patients, to get to know them, and to really lead their care in every sort of way. Well, gentlemen, you know, you uh, have such a robust enterprise when it comes to value-based care, and you've been immensely successful in managing risk across Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, commercial, obviously the MSSP, and uh, you've yielded over $100 million in performance returns since the inception of your, uh, your journey in risk. And I wanted to dive into a subset of that work the Oxner Accountable Care Network or OCEAN, which is your MSSP ACO, and it consists of more than 2,250 Oxner employed in community providers across Louisiana and the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And in the last three years, the ACO has doubled in size. You mentioned earlier 
Now you're entering into the 2023 performance year with 63,000 attributed beneficiaries, and you're going to continue participating in the MSSP in the foreseeable future, as I understand, and uh, evaluate ACO reach in the years to come. Uh, but if you look at the last year of performance results for 2021, Ocean achieved its sixth consecutive year of top ranking results in both clinical performance and healthcare savings for the population that you manage in Louisiana and Mississippi. And the ACO uh, lowered the expected cost of care by nearly $24 million for 40,000 attributed Medicare beneficiaries in 2021. And over the last six years, Ocean has really been successful in improving outcomes for your managed population, reducing spend, um, you've had a lot of clinical successes with uh, achievement of 100% quality score, you know, looking at uh, PCP visits and AWVs and focusing on high risk patient populations and really doing the heavy lifting to, to improve outcomes and impact utilization in a good way. So I wanted to ask you both if you could speak to the results that Ocean's had within your value-based contract portfolio so far and how the MSSP has played into your overall value-based care strategy? Yeah, so I'll, I'll first start on the quality aspect and some of the interesting aspects about our growth that goes with that. So our quality performance has improved year over year, and we have a lot of structures in place to help drive that and to make sure that we're successful. We've done a lot of it within our instance of Epic, but then also we have some, some docs who are not on our instance of Epic. So there's a lot that we do to support them to make sure that they're able to achieve those quality results. The thing that we actually are pretty proud of regarding is that, you know, we, we talked about it a moment ago, the numbers and the, the sheer number of beneficiaries that are now in the ACO. So not only are we taking excellent performance, we're now improving upon that with a larger and larger population. So when we think about the impact that we're having um, on our community, you know, that is an example of how we're taking quality improvement and scaling it to not only employee providers, but also our partners and other community, independent community docs as well. And so I, I think that's a something that we definitely have to be proud of, as well as the economic aspect of it for certain. But you know, from I always say that it, it starts with quality because if we're not providing quality care, then the rest really doesn't matter. And so that last performance period where it ended up giving us a hundred, um, I couldn't be more proud of our team and everything that they've done to help us help us achieve that goal. I'll share uh, just speaking to our success in the ACO. I think first and foremost, we've we've been extremely fortunate to have a leadership at our organization that is bought in and uh, has made the investments in our infrastructure, in our team, in our talent. And so we have just an incredible bench of leadership driving what it takes from a capability set, a competency set, a strategic perspective our performance in the ACO, both from physician leadership to operationally uh, on the technology and IS side, as well as data and analytics. And I can't undervalue the importance of having the talent and the buy-in and the investment from your leadership to support that. I'd like to 
follow up more on the pillars of, of success for oceans at an enterprise level. And as a health system, auctioner is all into its value-based care strategy. And as you're mentioning, this the senior leadership buy-in that has to be there, uh, the advocacy and commitment within the organization. And it's been elevated to one of four pillars of success for auctioner health. And the pandemic has catalyzed factors to make organizations even more committed to its value strategy as it works to overcome increasingly more negative margins and traditional fee-for-service lines of business. And, and every governmental payer is considered value-based, even if it's not tied to a risk contract, which has helped the value construct be become even more universal in the health system. And whereas other health systems view VBC success as only a clinical integration play, auctioners become differentiated on the national scene as a provider-led system and has expanded its Epic platform and made other significant investments to support continued success in your value transformation. And it's one thing to talk about lowering readmissions and avoiding hospitalizations, but auctioner has actually hardwired VBC success into the compensation model for the physician enterprise. And this hardwiring of accountability has amped up PCP engagement and chronic disease management and other programs. And I'd love for you to share and expound on the pillars of success for OHN and how your commitment that you're describing to value as a differentiator from other health systems operating within a traditional fee-for-service mindset. And, and how a senior level leadership or, or how a senior level engagement and the incentives alignment and compensation become a superpower for the organization. Thanks, Daniel. I'll start first with the question, which is a really good one about the importance of senior leadership engagement and alignment. I think like probably many organizations focused on population health and, and on the value-based care space, so when we got our start within OHN and Ocean at Auctioner, we really focused on all of the opportunities in the value-based care space that we would consider sort of low-hanging fruit. What are those things that we can impact that would require as little dependence or reliance on the traditional care delivery system? And I think there is so much of that low-hanging fruit out there that that served as opportunity for success for, for several years. But as we progress over the years and really sort of experience what I would call kind of diminishing returns on the low-hanging fruit, the real hard stuff um, and, and the, the biggest challenges in really uh, transforming the care delivery model and really achieving true success in value-based care can't be done without the partnership, the collaboration, the engagement of the care delivery system. And so for us at Auctioner, I think in the last couple of years, what we've really focused on is fostering that relationship, that partnership, uh, that collaboration with the traditional delivery leaders and operators and you know most helpful to that goal is having senior leadership engagement and buy-in so elevating as you mentioned value-based care as a core pillar of the enterprise strategy uh, was really critical to doing that adding some of the core or 
adding some of the key value-based objectives and metrics to the compensation model for both leaders within our organization as well as physicians is another tool that has been really effective at driving that change with a broader and broader stakeholder group. And I'll let Dr. Raymond talk a little more specifically about what we've done on the physician compensation side of things. Thanks, Eric. And actually, I'm going to go back a, a little bit in time to what you were first talking about, which was, you know, when we first started doing value-based care initiatives, you know, within OCEAN or, or within our MA plans or anything else that's a value-based care agreement we have, it was very much primary care driven from the start. Uh, so we were engaging a lot with primary care. I mean, that is how people get attributed to the system. That's how people get attributed to our network. And so that was a main focus for us was working with primary care. Um, and then as I talked about, you know, it, it gets a little bit more complicated and to go to the next level, you really need to engage with the specialists in different ways as well. So it can't just be all primary care driven. Um, and so we have to start engaging with the specialists to make sure people are getting the appropriate care in the right place in the right time. And so that was sort of the next level and, and getting, you know, diving deeper into very, very discreet episodes that we saw issues um, regarding choosing A versus B and how do we help align that we're always choosing the, the right course of therapy. Um, and so there's a lot more work that we're currently doing along those lines. And those are a lot heavier lifts and, and a lot um, more data to understand as to how to help drive that, those behaviors. From an incentive standpoint, you know, for, for compensation uh, within Within Ochsner Health, the specialists have value-based care uh, components to their compensation plan, and so they're looking at different items. Um, within primary care, a uh, big thing that we changed a, a couple of years ago now um, is that we actually created within Ochsner Health a primary care bonus that um, comes out on a quarterly basis, which is purely driven by certain quality measures or other things that we want to drive, and having that near-term compensation and incentive has really helped move the needle just that extra little bit and we were doing pretty well but we had higher standards that we wanted to achieve and by changing that aspect to where it wasn't an end of year type bonus it was something that was bonused on a more on a quarterly basis actually helped align um, the physicians even more because then they started to see financially real near-term benefits for the actions that they were doing as opposed to it being at the end of year where typically what we were finding with an end of year bonus that there was a flurry of activity at the very end which caused a lot of stress on the physicians and the system um, but by having it so it was kind of spread throughout the entire year allowed for us to be more deliberate about activities that were going all year long to help prevent um, that rush that happened in the fourth quarter on a regular basis to try to close as many care gaps as possible. It was done all year long and that has helped improve our performance um, in, in lots of ways. 
Well, gentlemen, we, we spoke earlier about how Oshner is super focused on the senior population. And there's one other important aspect of, you know, the work that you're doing in the value network, and that is how you're caring for commercial lives. And you've really created a care model in partnership with employers that has been an asset for your communities. And, you know, nationwide, we've seen adoption of employer-sponsored plans, which cover about 60% of the insured population, be really slow when it comes to to value transformation. And many insurance carriers claim that they've moved their commercial contracts past a certain critical threshold to value-based payment models. In large part, there's really strong financial incentives for providers to increase service volumes rather than enhance value. And given the market size that employer-sponsored plans represent, there's this chasm that needs to be crossed in the U.S. health system to achieve transformation towards value-based payment. And Oshner Health Network is Although it's still early in the process, you're really becoming a national leader in demonstrating what success looks like and building partnerships with self-funded employers to bring up to bring about meaningful value creation for providers and patients. How have you been able to structure value-based arrangements with employer-sponsored plans that are truly aligned with providers to lower total cost of care? Can you speak to some of the work that you've done to structure partnerships with employers for fully insured and self-insured populations? And also, we'd love to hear more about your collaboration with Walmart that also is is really a a centerpiece in providing integrated, coordinated, high-value care for employees across Louisiana. So we can start with Walmart um, and talk about our, our work with them. So we do have centers of excellence with Walmart as well as with other um, employers geared towards certain types of surgeries and disease states. Uh, so bariatric procedures, hips and knees, as well as, as other services. So with that, it requires that focus attention on those specific issues, those specific disease states, and make sure people are getting that full evaluation to make sure that it's the appropriate procedure to be done. Because honestly, you know, we look at our rates of how many times we're saying the patient actually doesn't need the procedure. Um, and we consider that to be somewhat successful because we're doing the full evaluation. And if someone's not going to benefit from having the procedure done, then they're actually going to be harmed by having the procedure done. And so we're taking a close look and making sure that we're doing the right care for the right patients, as opposed to simply doing everything for everyone, which is not in the patient's best interest. And from an employer standpoint, there, of course, you know, there, there's the dollar aspect of it, but really we're looking at it patient centric wise and that, you know, if you're not going to benefit from have, having a procedure done, then we shouldn't be doing that procedure. I think first and foremost, as the largest private employer in the state of Louisiana, Oxner Health certainly recognizes and, and can literally put itself in the shoes of what is important to employers in managing increasing costs uh, and the in the priority around the health and wellness of their workforce. So I think uh, we certainly lean upon that priority in managing our own workforce uh, when approaching other uh, employers and working with health plans on employer-sponsored products. Really, the, the, the primary way we have structured those agreements to bring to market for employers in our region are, one, we'll, we'll often share in, um, in the risk side with the insurers. 
with the insurance plan. And so um, we will bring our additional care management competencies, our evolved primary care model uh, to bear on the commercial employee population. Uh, and we'll also align the network that uh, pay, that beneficiaries in these products have access to with our clinically integrated network with OHN. And so by doing that, we have the structure in place and the incentives in place with our participating physicians to, to affect change uh, and to uh, drive certain behaviors and to understand um, opportunities and to look at the data and, and see you know, how best to manage that population. That has admittedly been somewhat of a struggle, I think, to grow. Um, as you mentioned, it's, you know, for us, I think it's still early stage for us. Um, we have uh, nearly tripled growth in our employer-sponsored accountable care network products from 2016 to today. So we have over uh, about 100,000 um, patients in Louisiana in those types of arrangements. I think what we've seen emerge as a more maybe palatable model kind of in the early stage in, in working with the insurance plans and with the employers is a care management fee model. And so this is where we'll work to negotiate additional PMPM uh, care management fees that uh, that essentially pay us for you know providing additional support resources care management and care coordination capabilities that you know we we believe and are sort of trying to make the pitch to the employers will ultimately reduce total cost of care uh, improve health outcomes improve wellness uh, for their employee population. But I think the, the task at hand is to, to be able to prove and articulate that um, and, and then to create you know, long-term better economic models um, for, for growth there. You know, I'm hearing the conversation and just thinking to myself, everything we're talking about today and all the success that you're experiencing and the challenges you're trying to overcome, it really comes down to the data infrastructure, you know, all the quality outcomes, improving population health. And and you guys have been so intentional in building a data infra infrastructure that supports your partner physicians. And for example, to achieve good quality outcomes, you put a system into place to marry claims to clinical data in new ways and feed it to practices at the point of care. And each practice has a quality coordinator and all the data comes from a shared electronic health record for, for so many of your physicians. And for the last eight years or so, the health system has integrated data from disease-focused registries on diabetes, hypertension, cancer, and other conditions into the workflow of its provider offices. And as soon as a physician opens a chart, they see where the care gaps are and they can start closing those gaps. And the network also built a platform for population-based care that resides outside of the EHR system that organizes those claims in meaningful ways. And this external software platform uses a claims grouper to evaluate the totality of care spend for specific patient populations. And through this method, providers are deploying interventions, you know, individually one by one across the entire care continuum. And 
to start understanding how to reduce variation and make care more efficient. And by understanding where the high-level savings opportunities are, Auctioneer Health Network can focus resources on those programs and take on more risk. I'd love for you to speak to the progress your organization has made in building a data infrastructure for population health. And how are you using this data in conjunction with AI and machine learning algorithms for predictive modeling and, and risk stratification in your patient populations? Yeah, thanks for the question, Daniel. And you're right. Um, I think at the at the core of all of these questions in this conversation certainly is the requirement and the empowerment that the data and analytics infrastructure uh, and tools uh, allow for. Uh, and so, you know, I just would would first say that I think you know population health analytics is uh, it's a journey. Um, I think we've been on this journey. Uh, for several years now. Um, I think the point that we are at now, uh, we're in a, a bit of a, a unique environment where I think we have sort of growth in dual priorities. Uh, and, and I think you hit on both of these things. Um, they aren't opposed to each other, but I think they do broaden sort of the aperture around how we think about population health analytics. So the first of those, which I think you talked a little bit about is is having really those deeper, more meaningful and impactful analytical insights to, to drive our strategy in a risk-based world, you know, beyond sort of the low-hanging fruit. Uh, and the, so that's having more, uh, sort of a more powerful engine and having claims groupers and predictive analytics that help to pinpoint opportunities and really drive the, the specific interventions that are going to uh, create change there. But then the second is, you know, sort of that second priority is that we also have a, a vastly growing audience of stakeholders and a growing appetite for those population analytics. So I think the success that we've had as an organization uh, has been borne out, as I've mentioned before, out of the engagement and collaboration with, um, with our operators on the traditional care delivery side with the physicians and their care teams in the office at point of care um, and with our partner hospitals and independent community physicians who are at varying states along uh, sort of the risk continuum. But now that that broad stakeholder group has really been turned on to the importance of and, uh, and recognizes the value in population health and in value-based care, um, we have to go to much greater lengths to democratize the data and analytics and insights that are important to driving change. So, so again, sort of, you know, so that's where the, the, the platform infrastructure to nimbly integrate clinical and claims data sets and render those into the workflow both within our EHR in EPIC um, as well as in into the EMRs of other physician groups who are not on our instance of EPIC um, to, to increasing numbers of, uh, of operators and, uh, and leaders within facilities or within medical groups. I think it's that dual challenge of both re reaching really greater depths of analytical precision, as well as expanding the, 
the breath simultaneously. Well, I wanted to build upon the uh, the health analytics infrastructure and technology deployment and talk about digital health. I mean, there's a great opportunity there. I know with the the population that you serve in Louisiana, I mean, uh, we see that that population as a higher manifestation of diabetes and hypertension, for example. I mean, with I mean, I think it's 14% of your population has diabetes and upwards of 40% of hypertension. And, you know, I, it's a really uh, big challenge, especially in uh, Medicaid and, and dual eligible populations. And as I understand, uh, Oshner Health a few years ago uh, launched a, a digital health pilot with the aim of improving outcomes for patients through and getting them enrolled in the in digital medicine programs. And these programs let leverage the analytics to create these personalized care plans that also involve using a digital device to send vital signs to a care team uh, member for uh, regular review. And while reviewing the results, I, I was reading in, an article in Stat News that talked about how the program really led to a lot of benefits for patients with hypertension and type 2 diabetes. I mean, it was found that about 50% of out-of-control hypertension uh, hypertension patients received a control level at the 90-day mark among those who were enrolled in, in the hypertension digital medicine program. And also uh, great success uh, with diabetics. 59% uh, of patients with poorly controlled diabetes reached a uh, a level of A1C that was within a specified uh, uh, goal. These are great examples of really good clinical standards of care that's been leveraged by a digital health solution. And I wanted to ask you both if you could speak a little bit about what OHM is doing to move the needle uh, with patients, uh, for example, uh, those with type 2 diabetes and hypertension that are in this digital medicine pilot, but also maybe what you're thinking around looking at other chronic diseases. I mean, are there any uh, digital health solutions that the network is looking to adopt as part of its population health playbook in the years to come? Sure. So for the digital hypertension and digital diabetes products, the I, I hope we say we're, we're beyond the pilot phase on those. So we've done a lot and we've shown that they're very successful now. So the, um, for both of them, what it is, you have a device that connects Bluetooth to your phone. Your phone then sends information over to us and we have pharmacists and health coaches and, and who are reviewing that data on a regular basis. It goes through an algorithm and, and lets those people know exactly who they need to be having interactions with. Um, so it's 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 a fantastic program. So sometimes it's just a nudge of you know did you did you watch what you ate today because your your numbers look a little bit higher than they should, um, and then just a simple contact with that. And then other times it's actually changing their medications. And so there are algorithms in the background that you know say what medicine the patient should be on next or whether they need to increase the dose or not. So it's very standardized yet personalized at the same time because depending on other factors one medication may be better than another so all that's in place and so pharmacists are the ones who are doing that outreach all this is of course supervised by endocrinologists and cardiologists and so it's a it's a very robust program and i'll go back in time when it first started the physicians were a little hesitant because they're going if i'm going to send patients over to digital that means i'm not going to be seeing the patients as much what we ended up finding out was actually that the patients were then became more engaged in their care and actually were getting other screenings done um, and making sure they got everything that they needed done. So the number of visits, when you look at it from an, an, an RVU or however you want to look at it, 
actually stayed the same or actually went up just slightly for people that were in um, digital medicine because they were more engaged with their care. What's funny is that we've now gone from where we had to convince the doctors that this was working well and that it, it had better outcomes. So we proved it had better outcomes. So physicians were more engaged with it to now, because of what we talked about at the very beginning about workforce and access issues, this is something where we're now talking to physicians. Look, if you have somebody who's eligible for it, get them enrolled because that way they can get that continuous care at home without having to come in. And they may be more willing to not come in as much because now you have people who are trying to get in um, and we don't have as many physicians or enough access, whatever the case may be. Um, so now it's actually gone the other way where now we're talking about let's do this to try to increase access to more people. And one thing that you didn't mention um, is that we did do a pilot with Medicaid just recently. And in that one, the number of people that had improvement was dramatically higher than who we initially um, had, given, had used the device for. Because initially it was, you know, commercial patients, 65 and over, but Medicaid patients, at least in the state of Louisiana, have a lot more access issues. And so by, you know, giving people uh, the device to connect to their phone, giving them that, and then having that outreach happen to them on a regular basis, patients were much more engaged in their care. They realized that, you know, they had better access than they ever had before to be able to help get them to their goals. And so it had tremendous response in the, in the Medicaid pilot. And so we're now working with the state MCOs and trying to get more adoption within the MCOs. Um, so they will help see this as a benefit to, to a broader population. Um, and when you talk about from OHN standpoint, we use this within virtually all of our value-based care programs that we have. Uh, those are the people that are eligible to be on it. Um, we've partnered with Blue Cross so that they can actually offer it to even a larger group that aren't even, you know, actively participating with our network, but an employer may want to use digital. And so they're going to be able to, you know, have it as a benefit in their employee program as well. So it's been very successful. We, of course, would like to get as many patients on it as possible because we see the, the impact it's having on our population and on our community. And as you stated earlier, we're, we have a lot of people with hypertension and diabetes. There's lots of opportunity for us to get our state to be better. So we would like to you know, offer this as best we can to as many people as possible within the state and beyond, actually. And what I'll add to this conversation is really to underscore that uh, the, the importance of digital health as a strategy within Optioner. So like we talked about value-based care being elevated as a, a core pillar of our strategy within the enterprise, digital health has also undergone that sort of elevation over the last couple of years here. And so we have tremendous leadership under Dr. Denise Bassal, who's Executive Vice President, Chief Digital Officer at Auctioner Health. Uh, but, but really having, again, that alignment and engagement across the, across the enterprise and, and from leadership has been really critical. You know, we've had uh, an organization within Auctioner for, for probably a decade now um, called Innovation Auctioner that uh, is really where um, we focus a lot of that innovation and in, in sort of program development in the digital space and where 
the digital diabetes and, and digital hypertension programs were initially developed. To your question about um, within the network, our plans for expansion of or any new digital programs, certainly um, there are a number of, of kind of key priorities where we think there is a real opportunity within the digital space to, to change the way we are addressing chronic disease or, or risks for patients. And so one of those that I'll, I'll just mention briefly that we will be piloting within our, our Medicare uh, MSSP population in 2023 is a uh, what we call a, a connected stability program. And so really the focus here is on the senior populations who are at high risk for falls. Um, we know that um, this is a, a, a tremendous driver of total cost of care, tremendous influencer on mortality. And so certainly a, an important area for us to focus from uh, an intervention perspective. And so this is really interesting. Uh, a, a, in a partnership um, with Apple, actually, we've developed the use of, you know, an Apple Watch sort of as, um, as a purse that can detect and uh, identify falls and provide EMS services uh, to patients, you know, sort of like your traditional um, personal response device. But supplementing on top of that, we've actually staffed um, within our existing population health uh, nurse triage call center, um, a 24-7, 365-day-a-year clinical service that's staffed by emergency medical technicians. So they can receive and respond to um, all patient-reported falls. Um, they can provide prompt medical advice or, when appropriate, you know, act really the, um, the EMS or, or calls to emergency contacts. And then finally, I think the, the big differentiator, um, really what's a comprehensive and completely digitally delivered fall prevention program that addresses all of the major components contributing to fall risk, including the home environment, including the interaction uh, of different medications, and including other conditions that may contribute to the risk for fall. So that's one example we're really excited about. I mean, I think the partnership that we have um, and the investments made kind of dually within Auctioner in both digital health and in value-based care create this, this really great innovation pod for us to, to, to both have these programs developed and then, and then pilot and refine them within um, within our at-risk population where, you know, by the nature of the value-based agreement allows, and us taking on risk, it allows for us to be a little bit more creative in how we're delivering care. And you, you had asked about other areas that we may be looking at. So I know that um, other areas of interest within the, the IO group, the Innovation Option Group are um, COPD, diabetes prevention, weight loss. So those are a few that I know that are out there right now. Wow, Dr. Raymond, Eric, I can't help but be excited with you just hearing that description and the work that you're doing. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So gentlemen, another another aspect of value-based value -based care innovation at Auctioner Health that I wanted to ask you about is behavioral health integration in your primary, in, in your primary care physician clinics. 
at a national level has been projected that one out of five Americans are living with a behavioral health condition. Although 70% of primary care appointments include problems with significant psychosocial issues, we know that less than half of those primary care patients receive any mental health treatment at all. The Oxford Care model is a leading example of how to integrate behavioral health resources, social workers, and psychologists into its PCP offices. Dr. Philip Orovetz, the Chief Population Health Officer at Auctioner Health, was recently interviewed and said, I can literally walk a patient down the hall so we can get their mental health therapy started. And that's such a powerful example of provider responsiveness to the mental health needs of your patients. Can you share with our listeners how your population health enterprise equips leadership, physicians, and care teams with the resources they need to help those patients most in need of behavioral health services? So within, for behavioral health and the integration within primary care, I mean, it's, it's basically trying to identify the people that need help most and get them the services that they need in a timely fashion and having that coordinated care between primary care and social workers, as you said, as well as psychiatry if needed. Uh, so it's really about identifying patients that are in need. Um, and we do that through several ways through Questionnaires that we do for social determinants of health helps highlight that, but then also we're screening people for depression um, on a regular basis as well, as well as anxiety. Um, and from that, that triggers, you know, that next step of getting them with a specialist to help engage with them about, about their behavioral health needs. Um, I know we talked earlier about the 65 plus programs. Those also have uh, behavioral health embedded within them. Um, and also we have something a little bit different. We have community health centers, which um, have been placed in areas of need, sort of health deserts, if you like. And and in those community health centers, um, which are not FQHCs, but not that far from from what they're what they're there for. Um, so they are they also have behavioral health support systems in place as well. So people who we see are at at significant need for uh, that integration. We've done it literally by having someone personally there. Um, and so it's not even a virtual thing. I will say where I would like for us to go is to get a little bit even further out and allow us to get better about um, virtual behavioral health integration. Um, I think that is probably the big next step that we need to make to help keep that care coordinated, you know, outside the doors and, and, and get patients engaged in their care on a regular basis. So I think that's the, the next level, but we'll continue to develop that and evolve it as, as we see fit um, because, you know, we got to find the opportunity and figure out what's the best way to, to work with that gap that we perceive and how we can close that gap to get better care at home as opposed to people even having to come in to get that, to get that care. Well, gentlemen, when we when I think about behavioral health, I also uh, can't help but think about the challenges faced by the healthcare workforce at large. I mean, we have one out of four clinicians in the U.S. that are considering leaving healthcare due to unrelenting burnout, and research has shown that around uh, half of half of the workforce is reporting some kind of decline in their mental health since the since the start of the pandemic and burnouts, the, the main cause. And 
Oxner Health has been covered in the news recently through its proactive work in standing up the Office of Professional Wellbeing to address the mental health of your workforce that includes measuring and benchmarking overall staff wellness and creating a resource group for women to discuss the unique stressors they face. So uh, can you explain how the population health enterprise supports the work being done at the system level to support the well-being of the workforce, you know, that quadruple aim, if you will, and and how does OHN effectively engage physicians in decision-making and build a culture of recognition so the workforce achieves fulfillment in the work that they do? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so, I mean, we're all very aware of the issues of physician burnout as well as moral injury, um, slight differences into exactly what both those terms are, but, you know, it's, it's a growing concern. Um, and so one of our leaders, uh, Dr. Nigel Gerga, he is responsible for our, the office of physician wellbeing. And so he's done a lot to understand the problem, to get a, a, a better view on it. And they've actually built out an even a larger team. So it's not just one person doing this anymore. And they're looking at more than just physicians, but also looking at APPs and other clinicians and and a much broader group. And so initially it was a lot of data trying to get information and understand exactly, you know, what the drivers might be and what we could do to try to make a difference. Um, and so with that, now there's, you know, actions, action plans coming out um, from that office that so they can try to address it on a regular basis. So there's a, a, a lot of different small initiatives that have happened over time to try to allow physicians to express what's going on and to help support them on a regular basis. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of work, I will say, regarding um, the what's considered one of the primary drivers, and I'm sure every clinician who's listening will agree, which is the inbox. Um, and so there is a lot of work going on to try to remove some of the that inbox messaging that's going on. So, and some examples of that are, um, you know, during the pandemic, people started to understand that they had a portal and so they could message their physician on a regular basis. And so that created a lot more messages that the physicians and APPs are getting, um, that they're having to address. Um, and so, and so this became a more of a normal thing now after the pandemic. So it creates a lot more messages. And so we're trying to figure out ways to make sure the met, the right message is getting to the to the providers, um, because one thing we were not doing a good job of is that. So refills were coming into the providers, questions about you know appointments were coming into the providers. So we had to filter that out. So we made some changes within the inbox to help make sure that the right messages are getting to uh, the clinicians that they're able to address what needs to be addressed and and not see all the other ones that they wouldn't even know what to do with anyway. So that's some of the work that's going on. Um, and some of the other things along with that is that we now have refill clinics built out so that they, we have pharmacists who are basically looking through the refills and making sure they're appropriate and just simply taking care of them without them even hitting the physician inbox. And we've, we've scaled that through all the primary care. We've scaled that throughout the system for primary care. We're now looking at scaling into other specialties to try to help reduce that, those unnecessary messages to the, to the clinicians. So a lot going on there. And for even our partners and independent community providers, I mean, 
lots of education that we've helped share um, and we've extended, you know, the availability for certain resources to other providers as well to try to help alleviate uh, some of those stressors that are going on. And I'll just add a few things to that. And, you know, in addition to the, the, the technology and, and the automation um, efforts to try to decrease some of the, the administrative burden on the physicians, you know, part of our value proposition within OHN is that we employ about 400 uh, sort of support care team members, including social workers, nurses, care coordinators, patient engagement specialists who are really designed to complement the physician practices, both for our employee group as well as, as for our network. And so by design, I think, you know, that really achieves two aims. One, it supports the practices. It provides them with, uh, with services in, in sort of a, a broader, a bigger care team um, to reduce their, the burden that they feel um, on the practice alone. And really, secondarily, I think it also provides alternative employment opportunities in, in career development for our clinical staff who maybe over the past couple of years, you know, either their lives have changed or they, you know, from a, from a burnout perspective, they've reached a point where um, they have different priorities uh, and, and things that are important to them from a lifestyle perspective. And so being able to stay a part of the organization and to contribute to really a growing body of work in terms of the need for uh, for clinical care teams who maybe aren't housed it in the practice. They're virtual, they're phone-based, they're, they're digital-based. Um, it really creates an opportunity there. I think secondarily, you know, we talked earlier about the Auctioner 65 Plus clinics. And while that, that, you know, redesigned model of primary care is really focused on delivering a differentiated experience and, and better outcomes for the aging population. It's also, it also has the distinct goal of deliberating, of delivering that differentiated experience and outcomes for the care team. So where a, the clinic is designed around facilitating that team-based care, um, supporting with dietitians, with behavioral therapists, with clinical pharmacists, with, you know, nurse care managers kind of working in collaboration with the, the provider, you know, again, I think um, to, to, to sort of channel Dr. Kenny Cole, who leads those clinics and, and certainly a visionary in his own right on um, the space of clinical transformation, the model there is really designed to, to allow physicians to, to reconnect with what was, you know, the sense of purpose and why they went into medicine, you know, spending more time with their patients, working in a team-based environment, having these support services um, where everyone is sort of working together with the patient to achieve, you know, the same kind of shared goals. And then finally, you know, from a workforce development perspective, we see in the population health space, a lot of opportunity to partner with community colleges, workforce development um, organizations with our community to not only create a pipeline of workers who can support population health and, and value-based care, you know, but of providing and increasing employment, providing that training. So 
uh, to to our community members. So uh, one example of that, which we've um, we're now a couple of years into is the development with Delgado Community College here in New Orleans of a community health worker program, uh, where it's an apprenticeship um, for training community members in, uh, in, in, in future long-term secure, really rewarding employment. And at the same time, addressing a gap that exists in the industry around sort of a lack of training to do the to do work in uh, in the population health space. Well gentlemen, this conversation is truly inspiring. I love all of the innovation that you guys are involved in. The workforce development is such a huge piece and such a prior an important priority for us particularly as well. And and another high priority that uh, that we're both focused on, I'd like to discuss as we wrap up our conversation today. And, and that's the work that you're doing to address health inequities in your underserved populations. Auctioner has launched a $100 million effort to improve health outcomes in Louisiana with a comprehensive strategy to enhance healthcare access, to improve health equity and health outcomes. And the goal is to, over the next 10 years, improve the state's overall population health and improve the ranking of Louisiana where it is no longer at or near the bottom of the list of most healthy states. And becoming a healthy state is your health equity strategy. And this equity strategy doesn't just fall on the backs of the VBC team. The commitment to workforce development and education and how your organization is deploying the CHW staffing model you just discussed for population health improvements in the state. It's a leading example of value transformation at a national level. And we talked about this program with Dr. David Carmouche when we interviewed him two years ago. And I'd, I'd love to get an update on the work. Can you describe for our listeners how Auctioner Health Network is making inroads to improve health equity in marginalized and underserved communities? Sure. Well, regarding the Healthy State Initiative, we are acting as a catalyst to go beyond just the walls of Auctioner. So we are working with other institutions that others people would consider competitors. We are working with payers. We are working with employers. We are working with um, school systems. I mean, it, it's you name it, and they're involved with this. So we're we're basically just kind of setting the stage and getting people together to start having good conversations about how we can make a difference within the state of Louisiana, and also explaining those drivers because it's not just about um, people with diabetes and hypertension and and getting them under control. It's about how do we make it so that we reduce smoking. Um, in the state? How do we make it so that we have more people who are graduating from high school in the state? How do we make it so that uh, people have more opportunities and we're actually increasing the, the level of employment as well as the salaries inside the state? So it's a much broader initiative than just simply what a health system would normally be involved with because it's going so far downstream than what we typically would be engaged with, right? So it's not about, you know, you have somebody who's seeing you and coming in your walls. It's it's about reaching out to people who aren't even having decent access to a clinic in the first place. And how can we help out with that? So like I said, we've, we've partnered with um, LCMC, which is our nearest competitor in New Orleans, the Franciscans, um, and who are mainly up in Baton Rouge. Um, and so these are institutions that you that typically you would, you would call our competitors, but they're working alongside with us try to improve the health of the state. 
So some of the initiatives that are going on right now are, are geared towards, like you talked about education and workforce development. We actually were able to help uh, get a plan passed by the state where they're gonna fund for a lot more educational opportunities within the community colleges, as well as universities to try to increase the number of enrollees, as well as even one of the institutions, University of Louisiana, which is located in Lafayette, they're actually decreasing their tuition. Now, I will tell you, I, I have kids who are in college and one that's about to go to college. Decreasing tuition is a novel concept. So, you know, they're doing things like that to try to make it so that it's more accessible for more people to get into these programs. And so it was, it's, they couldn't use the funds that were coming and say, oh, we got, we got all this new money. Let's create a new program. They actually weren't allowed to do that. They had to expand upon existing programs or like Lafayette did actually lower the bar and make it easier for people to get in who would not have the funds to do so. And so that's just an example, but then there's a lot of other direct healthcare workforce involvement that's about, you know, nurses, PAs, as well as um, LPNs and RNs and community health workers, all the, it's a much broader spectrum that we're involved with um, through all these community um, college partnerships that we have. And that's just an example. And then for tobacco use, we have some initiatives going on to try to help decrease that and increase awareness and also do better about lung cancer screening within the state of Louisiana and do better about screening for diabetes and hypertension for people who aren't coming into our facilities. So we're trying to get organized about just that, that simple outreach. Because if you think about it in most places, you know, Oshner will we'll go and do a community outreach and then LCMC will do a community outreach and then um, FMOL will do a community outreach. Well, let's get coordinated. Let's make sure that, you know, we're organized and we're not, we're not missing certain communities. How do we make it so that we know that we're actually making an impact much more broadly? Um, we recently had something where we partnered with uh, the Urban League and, and basically had this big, massive health fair where people get educated about health as well as get screenings done. Um, it was down at the convention center in New Orleans. So it was a huge success. And so we're going to do the same thing up in Baton Rouge. Um, and so it's just trying to get people access, get people screened, get them educated, help get rid of fears that people may have about engaging with healthcare providers. Um, so it's, it's a, a very broad initiative um, with lots of partners at the table. So that's how we're trying to drive that is just, like I said, being the catalyst for this, this change that needs to happen within the state of Louisiana. I think the, the one thing I'll add to that is, you know, when this announcement was made a couple of years ago, I don't think there was a bigger sort of cheerleader or, or advocate than us in the population health space. And I think that gets back to, to the point you had in your question about really, it, this is so important for us in ensuring that the burden of addressing health equity doesn't disproportionately fall on the backs of really the population health organization and, and within the value-based care construct. Um, because really, you know, we, we talk about how, you know, value-based care is just really good health care, right? And so if we talk about what uh, kind of with a similar lens, health inequity is really is really more than health inequity, right? The things we talk about when we uh, when we address health equity are really 
societal inequities. Uh, and so these are deep-seated challenges that go far beyond the delivery of healthcare and require a much broader stakeholder group, much deeper collaboration and investments in and uh, in, in a focus on all of those things that Dr. Raymond mentioned around graduation rates and income and access to, to broadband internet that are just far, far beyond our traditional scope of, of what we think of in healthcare, certainly, or in, in even within the population health space where, you know, I think we've long gone beyond sort of the traditional four walls, but this is taking that even, you know, a step further. And so I think for, uh, for our organization to, to recognize that, uh, to hear that, and to, to make those investments um, has been really, uh, really, I think, inspiring for, for all of us. Well, we are inspired as well. And, you know, Eric Gallagher, Dr. Bo Raymond, thank you both for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Uh, Daniel and I really enjoyed the conversation, and I know our listeners are really going to be able to incorporate a lot of best practices and important insights to drive value transformation for the future. Thank you so much again for joining us, gentlemen. Absolutely. Eric, Daniel, thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank y'all so much. It was great.